Bible, just raise your hand. We'll slip you a Bible so you can follow along. We're going to finish uh, chapter 15, go into chapter 16, and then chapter 17. So, um, yes, we're going to be here till midnight. So, <laughs> no, we won't. So, um, anyway, we want to continue chapter 15 of 1 Kings of the Old Testament. And then we're going to start reading at verse 25, finish up and move into chapter 16. We'll see how far the Lord gets us tonight. So I want to announce a few things while you're turning there. First of all, there's, um, there's a lot of things in the bulletin, so be sure to uh, look at those things and get these things down in the calendar tomorrow. Uh, after, uh, actually, morning at 1130 is the Ladies 55 and Over Luncheon. So ladies, those of you who are signed up for that, have a great time tomorrow um, as they meet here. You have to kind of excuse the dust out there in the coffee shop area or the foyer area as we're just uh, doing some, a little bit of remodeling out there. We're going to be moving the uh, uh, tape ministry. I, you know, I've been a pastor for a long time. I keep calling it the tape ministry. The other thing, too, is I have a forerunner to only play CD tapes. So, and, uh, so I, keep, I keep saying tape ministry, but just the CDs. And um, that we give away. And um, after the services, you can pick one up for free after Sunday and Wednesday. And uh, so we're going to move all that over there. And then we're going to kind of open up that area in that room over there and do some changing around for signing in for kids. We got to use every square inch of this building um, that we can very efficiently because of all the growth and everything that's going on. Those are good problems, but we just kind of kind of rearrange things. So that's what's taking place out there. Um, also, uh, men's breakfast on Saturday. Uh, guys, 8 o'clock at Golden Crow. So meet us uh, there for that. And then uh, tomorrow night is Young Adults Thursday night. So those of you who are young adults, I know we have some new young adults that are here. 7 o'clock uh, here um, upstairs actually is where they meet. So young adults. And then also we're doing a Young Married uh, Couples Fellowship on Friday, September the 7th. So those of you who are uh, married and, and um, we're going to meet 6.30 to 8 o'clock. We will have child care so you can come and fellowship and get to know one another because we got so many new married couples uh, that have been coming to um, Calvary Chapel. And uh, so that's on Friday, September the 7th. Uh, there is the men's golf September the 8th for you guys that want to do that, limited space. So uh, they'll be going out September the 8th so you can sign up at the information desk that we kind of got set out there. And then ladies cook out September the 8th. So ladies, a ladies event coming up. And that will be at 4 o'clock at the home of Teresa Romero. So ladies, sign up for that. And also ladies, ladies Bible study Thursday mornings is going to begin. So there's a pink flyer. And at 9.30, there will be child care for that uh, lady study. And uh, the gospel for real life is what they're going to be studying. And uh, so Sandy uh, is going to be leading that study. Sandy, just raise your hand. So if any of you are new ladies and want to talk to Sandy, uh, you can talk to her after the service. And uh, the lady study is um, very, very um, vibrant. And a lot of ladies come on Thursday morning. They really... Uh, are blessed by that. So sign up for that, ladies, so we can get that to you starting Thursday morning on September the 13th. And then also there's some other things, uh, Messiah Mansion Tour that's going to be here, the replica of the tabernacle and the uh, kids uh, in the children's ministry in the middle school. Uh, kids are going to be uh, going as a group on September the 15th. So take a look at all those things. We always update everything on the web page. And we want to get into our Bible study here tonight. So 1 Kings chapter 15, we'll start reading at verse 25. Now you recall 
that we are in this section of 1 Kings now where we are looking at the house of Israel and the house of Judah down south. And it was after the reign of Solomon that uh, when his son Rehoboam was on the throne that the ten northern tribes would break away and, and it was the nation that was split at that time. And the ten northern tribes make up the house of Israel and then the house of Judah is made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And so as we travel through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, again, I want to remind you that we need to kind of put our thinking caps on a little bit because as we opened up chapter 15 last week, it was talking about um, Abijam and Asa who were the kings of Judah. And now as we finish up chapter 15, the scene is going to switch to where we're going to be talking about the kings of Israel. Matter of fact, when we go into chapter 16, we're going to talk about five successive kings that are discussed their reign as we go through chapter 16 leading to King Ahab who perhaps was probably the worst king of the house of Israel. As we look at the kings of Israel, there were 19 kings. Every single one of those kings were evil. As you look at the kings of Judah, some of the kings were good and did what was right in the sight of the Lord. For example, we end it with Asa in his reign. And Asa was a good king, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And we know that because the Lord was blessing Judah, what happened was is that the people in Israel up north were wanting to come down to Judah. And we end it with Beasa, the king of Israel, uh, coming down just north of Jerusalem at uh, Ramah. He would fortify the city. He was preventing people from coming from Israel, migrating down into Judah, and it was an act of war. So we saw that Asa would sell some of the gold that was in the temple of the house of the Lord, and he would pay off the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, to go and attack uh, Israel up north, and that's what Ben-Hadad did. He said, I'll take your gold, and uh, I'll attack Israel up north. And it was by Asia, when he saw that the uh, the king of Syria was attacking him from the north, he had to leave uh, all the things that he was doing in Ramah and fortifying it and his troops. They had to go up there and fight the king of Syria. So Asa had that plan that came about that work. But we also know from Second Chronicles chapter 16 that it was the prophet that came to Asa and said to Asa, you didn't trust in the Lord, that uh, his eyes go to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. And you see Asa, who was a good king, what happened over time was over 35 years uh, of trusting the Lord and seeing God work and delivering Asa and Judah from a million-man Ethiopian army, what happened is he became very self-reliant. And that's something that we got to watch out for, Christians. Because what can happen very easily, if we're not careful, is that we can travel you know, in our journey with the Lord, and all of a sudden we start to become self-reliant a little bit. We start you know, trusting in our own intellect, uh, start making our own plans, start going our own direction. And it is the Lord that wants to remind us again tonight that his eyes go to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart are loyal towards him. You keep your heart towards him, and you look to him in every area of your life and every day of your life. And so that's the lesson where we left off. So let's begin. Now the scene changes from Judah 
to the king of Israel, which is Nadab. And we read in verse 25, Now Nadab, the son of uh, Jeroboam, uh, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. And then Baasa, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasa killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadad and all of Israel lay siege to Gibbethon. And Baasa killed him in the third year of Asa king of Judah, and reigned in his place. We read in verse 29, And it was so, when he became king, that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken to his servant Hijah at Shilonite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, and by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation, with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Baasa, king of Israel, all their days. And so Nadab, uh, he is the son of Jeroboam. You recall that Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. And it was the prophet that had come to Jeroboam and said that ten of the tribes are going to be given to you, Jeroboam. And if you follow after the Lord, then the Lord's going to bless you. But if you don't, then it's going to be bad news. Judgment is going to come to you. And it was Jeroboam that would reject the word of the prophet that came to him and said that his house, Jeroboam's house, would be established if he followed after the Lord. That was a promise given to him. And what Jeroboam did, because he was afraid that the people of Israel at the time that they split away from Judah, that they would want to go to Jerusalem and to the temple and want to reunite with their brethren down south. And so he makes two temples dedicated to the golden calf, as you recall, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And he was an idol worshiper and plunged the house of Israel into idol worship. And because of that, we saw in the previous chapter, that is chapter 14, that it was the prophet that came to him and said that, you know, and actually told Jeroboam's wife that here's a message of the Lord. And the message is this, Ahijah would say, is that your family, Jeroboam's uh, family, is going to be killed off. And uh, he's going to be killed. And so what we see here is Nabad, is Jeroboam, he was struck by the Lord, as we know from Second Chronicles chapter 14. And then his son rules here, and then he ends up uh, being killed. And it is Baasha that does that and kills off uh, the house of Jeroboam, just as it was prophesied in the following chapter. You know, the consequences are great when we don't follow after the Lord. And here is Jeroboam. He was told that you will be established and your house be established if you follow after the Lord. And dads and moms and grandmas and grandpas, uh, as, as we lead our families, as we follow after the Lord, and as we desire to serve the Lord and walk in obedience to the Lord, that know that he's going to establish your house, that there's going to be blessing that's going to come to your house.
But if we are ones that we neglect what the word of the Lord is to us, then all of a sudden there's sadness and there's sorrow and there's difficulties and, and serious consequences that can happen. And that's what happened to Jeroboam because he did not follow the word of the Lord and the promise of the Lord that he would be established, but he ignored it. And the Lord said that it's going to be difficulty and judgment would come if you reject me. And that's exactly what happened. He did not follow after the Lord and ignored the Lord and would not repent. And so we see this is what happens as Jeroboam's family and his um, offspring are now put to death. And so Baasha is reigning in Israel. Now as we go into chapter 16, uh, as we're going to see that uh, Baasha is going to be ruling and then five successive kings of Israel are going to be discussed. First, let's finish chapter 15, verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel and Tirsa, and he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. In chapter 16, then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of uh, Hanani, and uh, against Baasha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you rule over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins. And so as we move into chapter 16, you recall that as we ended uh, last week, talking about how Asa had the prophet that would come to him and say, Asa, because you trusted in the king of Syria, you didn't trust in the Lord. And, and the Lord has come to rebuke you because of that. And the eyes of the Lord go to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. That was Hanani. And Hanani, he ends up having a son. His son is Jehu. And Jehu, he ends up speaking to Baasha here and is going to give a prophecy. Now, Jehu is interesting. When you look at him in the scriptures, he had a long prophetic ministry because his ministry, we know, lasted over 50 years because he's going to end up speaking and giving words of prophecy to Jehoshaphat. So here is Jehu. He is uh, going to speak to Baasha as we read uh, in verse 2 again. Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins, surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And the dogs, verse 4, shall eat whatever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. And so here we see that this judgment is pronounced upon, upon Baasha and his household. It, it's not good. And the reason is, is because you've done evil like Jeroboam. Judgment is going to come to you and come to your house. Just as it was with Jeroboam, and it's not going to be pretty as we see in verse 4. The dog shall eat, you know, whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. So serious consequences happening once again. And here is Baasha. He doesn't know, he doesn't understand, or he doesn't pay attention to what happened to Jeroboam the king and, and to his family, and he's experiencing the same consequences. It's kind of like what reminds me when Jeremiah came on the scene, and he began to prophesy to the house of Judah, and he began to rebuke Judah. He said, your sister Israel, who's gone off into captivity, 
you should have learned from her how she was you know, worshiping idols and provoked the Lord to anger. And the Assyrians came down in 722 BC and took the 10 northern tribes off into captivity. And it was brutal and it was you know, terrible. The, the Assyrians were very, very brutal people. They would skin you alive. They would put fish hooks in your mouth and drag you off. And that's what happened. And you should have learned from Israel but you're doing the same sins. And we know that the scripture here, we see that these things are written to us so that we may learn that we know that there's consequences in rebelling against the Lord and walking in sin. And matter of fact, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Old Testament examples are given to us so that we will not follow after evil ways, that, that we would be ones that we can learn from the mistakes and the sins of what happens and the consequences of sin as these examples and stories are written to us. They say that you can learn from mistakes, but it doesn't have to be your own mistakes. And we can look at here those who have rebelled. In this chapter, we're going to see what happens as it goes from bad to worse of those who have rejected the word of the Lord and the ways of the Lord. And so this judgment coming upon Baasha and his household, just as it was with Jeroboam. In verse 5, now the rest of the acts of Baasha, what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Baasha rested with his fathers and buried in Tirsa. Then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of um, Hanani, against Basha and his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord and provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. And now verse 8, in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elad, the son of Basha, came king over Israel and reigned two years in Tirsa. And now his servant Zimri, a commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Tirsa, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirsa. So here we see, after the death of Baasha, uh, in verses 5 through 7, we see that... Um, Baasha or Baasha's family is wiped out just as the prophet said would happen. And now notice that uh, as we have uh, Eli and we see that that's going to take place here, he is killed, verse 9, when drinking himself drunk as we read here. And I just want to say this, that the scripture says for you and to me not to be drunk with wine, Ephesians chapter 5, but be filled with the Spirit. And we are to walk circumspectly is what Paul is saying in that section of Ephesians chapter 5. In other words, that make sure that you're not filled with wine because you won't be able to discern what is good and what is bad, what is holy, what is unholy, what is, you know, um, what is clean, what is unclean. And the thing is, is that we want to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, not under the influence of alcohol. Now, we can sit here and we can say, yes, we know that. But I just want to, to remind us again how alcohol has destroyed so many of man or woman or families. Because alcohol ends up just, you know, coming into their lives and being a pastor for 20 years now that I've seen how alcohol and drugs have put people into bondage, has, has you know, caused devastating consequences, has you know, caused 
devastating consequences to marriages and to, to families that end up being torn apart. And I think that probably most of us, we you know, know people and, and maybe uh, somehow in your own family you've seen that happen and it breaks our hearts when we see it. And it grieves me to see what alcohol and what drugs have done in our society and how prevalent it is and how ugly it can be. What really frustrates me is when you know, I see the church that does dumb things, stupid things, like let's have pub theology and let's have Bible studies down at the bars and it's kind of a cool thing and an end thing in the church today in some circles. And I think how foolish can you be because there are going to be those who will go to those places and they can't handle it. The temptation is too great. And they think, yeah, this is cool. I'll go down and, you know, we'll have Bible study and we'll have a few beers and it's kind of a cool thing. And, you know, we have liberty in Christ and all of this. But it ends up the temptation is so great that if I can go down for Bible study, I can go down at other times. And there are those that I have talked to personally that started out in, you know, you know no big deal or anything, but it ended up catching up with them. And the temptation was so great, they ended up to where it became a problem. It's not wise for Christians to be doing things like that. And again, I just get so tired of seeing what alcohol does to families and to marriages and drugs. And here we see Allah here that he's under the influence. He's drunk, drinking himself, drunk in the house of Arza and the steward of his house. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him, as verse 10 tells us, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Beishah. He did not leave him one male, neither his relatives nor his friends. Thus Simri destroyed all the household of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. And all the sins of Basha and the sins of Allah, his son, which they had sinned, by which they had made Israel sin and provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Allah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? of Israel. So we see that again, here is this judgment that came on Basha and his family just as prophesied. And in verse 15 is Zimri. He's reigning now in the 27th year of Asa king of Judah. Zimri had reigned in Tirsa seven days. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. So all of Israel made Omri the commander of the army king over Israel that day in one camp. Then Omri, uh, Omri excuse me, and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon, and they besieged Tirsa. And it happened when Zimri saw the city was taken, that he went to the citadel, the king's house, and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died, because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he has committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So Zimri, he's king only for seven days. When the word came that, that he's king, you know, um, that he had killed uh, Allah and the household of Basha, uh, they said, we don't want him to be our king. So they turned to Omri. And it goes from bad to worse, doesn't it? 
Has anybody heard that, that the people were turning against him? So what he does, he shuts himself up in his palace and sets it on fire, and he took his own life. Nice life. All because of sin. And all because of rebelling against God. Well, let's continue as we see Omri now. Then the people of Israel, in verse 21, were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Gibnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. And, but the people who followed Omri prevailed against the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died with, and Omri reigned. So here was this further division seen here in the civil war in Israel would last for five years. And what happens now is Omri is continuing to reign. And verse 23 tells us, In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirsa. And he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemur from two, uh, for two talents of silver. And he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemur, owner of the hill. So what we see here is um, he buys um, this hill called Samaria, and uh, Omri, uh, as he buys it, he builds and begins to build the city of Samaria, and it's going to become the capital of the ten northern tribes in Israel. And um, Omri did evil, verse 25, in the eyes of the Lord, and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and um, in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab his son reigned in his place. One of the things that I want to draw attention to that um, you will see here, the phrase um, that is in verse 26, and we've seen it with each of these kings uh, of Israel that were idol worshipers, that they provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. That's a phrase that we will continue to see as we go through these kings that were wicked kings. And as I think about that, um, they had to be very, very wicked um, as they did that because we know that God is a merciful God, and he's gracious. And we know that he's long-suffering and he's patient. And matter of fact, Psalm 103, verse 8 says, not only is he merciful and gracious, but he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So the Lord is slow to anger. And here are these guys, because of their sin and causing the nation to be in sin, provoking the Lord to anger, you know that they had really rebelled against the Lord. One of the things as Christians that we need to be very careful of is that if we ignore or rebel against the Lord in any area of our lives, against what God has told us to do or how he wants us to live, that he is long-suffering with us and he is very patient with us and he is slow to anger. Remember, we're talking about righteous anger here. But don't mistake the long-suffering of the Lord and the patience of the Lord that, to think that the Lord doesn't care that you're sinning or the Lord doesn't care that you're rebelling or that he's indifferent or he even approves of it. He doesn't. He's patient. He's full of mercy. He's full of grace. But he still calls us to repentance, okay? And he desires for us to return to him. He's slow to anger. Sometimes people think that God is just there ready to zap them as soon as they get out of line. 
He's very merciful and gracious. He desires for us to hear his voice when there needs to be correction, when there needs to be, you know, a turning away from sin or attitudes or whatever there is. And he is very patient with us. He loves us. Just as parents, we're very patient with, you know, our children, aren't we? As they grow up and we discipline them, of course it takes patience and there's long suffering. And we need to be ones that continually are working with their children and disciplining them. And see, the Lord is that way as well. So here as we go through this phrase, it kind of caught my, my attention as it provoked the Lord to anger, again, a righteous anger, because they refused to turn away from their sin and idol worship. And we see for year after year, the prophet after prophet who came to these kings and came to the nation and said, turn back to the Lord. He loves you. He brought you into this land. He has blessed you. And you see, the Lord desires to do the same thing with us as well. So you'll see that phrase over and over again as we go through. And now we're going to look at Ahab as he now reigns in Israel. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, uh, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Baal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then as we finish the chapter, verse 34, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundations with um, Abram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Sagub. He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which is spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So here Ahab comes on the scene. The next couple chapters now, as we've kind of gone over the successive kings, you know, of Israel, that, you know, it starts out, with Basha, his family gets wiped out, and then it goes to Elah, uh, then it goes to, you know, uh, Zimri, Omri, and, and all these guys, and, um, and then now to Ahab. And we see that the nation is being plunged deeper and deeper into idol worship. Now Samaria is built, the capital of the ten northern tribes. Eventually that's what it becomes. And Ahab comes on the scene with his wife Jezebel. The next couple chapters are going to focus on Ahab, on Jezebel, and also how they plunge the nation deep, deep into Baal worship. They build a temple, as we read, here in Samaria, and that's where the people go to worship Baal in the nation. And so uh, here is Ahab ruling in Israel. In verse 34, you might be wondering, what is this all about? It talks about in the days of Hael, of Bethel built Jericho. And when it says that he laid his foundations with uh, Abraham, his firstborn, and then his youngest son, in the Hebrew, what it actually means is that he built and laid the foundation uh, at the cost of the life of his sons. In other words, what's going on here, and then it's mentioned about uh, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Joshua, the son of Nun. Back in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, when Joshua and the children of Israel came into the promised land and the walls of Jericho came down, they defeated Jericho, it was Joshua that put a curse on Jericho. He said, curse is the man who tries to rebuild you know, the foundations of this city once again, the walls of this city. 
And it is now Ahab who comes on the scene. And for some reason, he gets this guy, Ahel, to, to go and, um, you know, uh, build this city of Jericho once again. And it seems to indicate to us that Ahab was just trying to rebel against the word of the Lord. Hey, you go and rebuild the foundations of the city of Jericho. And, of course, the word of the Lord comes true as it cost the life of Hael and his two sons. Now, we don't know how exactly they died, but it is interesting, as it says here, that he laid his foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest son. Um, it cost them their lives. How it was exactly that that was done, we don't know for sure, but it's interesting. Archaeologists have done some excavations there in Jericho, and they've uncovered evidence of a practice in ancient biblical times called foundation sacrifices in which the children were buried maybe alive in the foundations of the building. So this is how, you know, bad the nation is getting. This rebellion against the word of the Lord, rebellion against the Lord itself, already sacrificing their own children, as, as we see, and it's also going to take place in the house of Judah. So it's a dark, dark time in the nation of Israel, and also uh, the house of Judah is going through difficult times as well. And in the darkness that has taken place, chapter 17, then Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, all of a sudden in the dark time in Israel, when this evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel comes on the scene, Baal worship is very prevalent, it's increasing. They built the temple in Samaria. Um, the nation is plunged into Baal worship. In this dark time, God sends a bright, shining light, the prophet Elijah, this fiery prophet. And I just want to have us to, to really think about that in the dark days that we live in, and folks, it's getting darker, isn't it? We are rebelling as a nation, and in the world we see it happening against God more and more, and it's getting darker. And it was Paul the Apostle, and as, as he was writing to his young protege, Timothy, he said that, Timothy, in the last days, what's going to happen is that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. And I believe that we are seeing that. We're going to continue to see that as we get closer to the return of the Lord. It is dark times, and what my prayer is, is that you would be a light, because you are the light of the world. And that as you go throughout your day, wherever you are, whether you're at school, on the campus, whether you're in the workplace, in your neighborhood, to your family, that you would be a light to them. And people need to see light, they need to see truth. And may we be ones every day that we get up and we say, Lord, help me be light. Help me be the light in that, that workplace. And you might think, oh, the workplace, the place that I, I work in, it's, it's a drag, I hate it, it's, it's, it's you know, a terrible place. Well, the Lord wants you to be a light as you were there, to be a witness and, and the places that he has placed you. And here comes Elijah, he's a light in this dark situation. And Elijah, his name means Yahweh is my God. And here he is as he comes, and as we read, he goes to, he's from Gilead. He goes to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. There shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. So here's Elijah. Uh, he comes, and he's from Gilead, which is a rough, dry desert area. Isn't it amazing how many men of the desert were used of the Lord? 
Moses, he spent 40 years out in the desert, didn't he? Herding sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. David spent a lot of time out there in the desert, in the Negev desert, as he was being pursued by Saul, as Saul was trying to kill David. It was John the Baptist, his ministry was out in the desert, out in the wilderness of Judea, and we've shown slides of where John the Baptist was was ministering as we've taken trips to Israel, and it's, it's very desert and dry and rocky, it's, and we know that it is Paul who also spent time even in the desert himself. After his conversion, he spent three years there in Arabia, being taught by the Lord. And maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you feel like that you're in the desert right now, Maybe you feel like spiritually things are dry and things are a little bit barren in your life. I want to encourage you tonight that you just trust in the Lord and rest in His love because God may be preparing you for something great that He wants to do in you and through you. And that's what He did with Elijah. That's what He did with Moses. That's what He did with David. That's what He was doing with John the Baptist. That's what He did with Paul the Apostle. Just allow the Lord to do that work that he wants to do in your life so he can use you. And Elijah, this man of the desert, gives his word to the Lord, to Ahab, who worshiped Baal, the god of weather and rain. And it's not going to rain, except that my word, that is the word of the Lord. And Elijah, he he reminds them that as the Lord lives, as we read in verse 1, God was not dead. Maybe they thought that the God of Israel was dead, but Elijah reminds them he's not dead. And it's not going to rain. In verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide at the brook Cherith, which follows into the Jordan. And it will be that as you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So all of a sudden we see that Elijah would flee to Cherith because Elijah had proclaimed this drought. His life would be in danger. And as Elijah goes there, the birds, kind of cool here, are bombing down bread and meat on him. And he's able to eat for, you know, this bread and meat for three years. And he's drinking out of the brook, but then the brook begins to dry up. And I just wonder what was going through Elijah's heart, what was going through his mind during these weeks that pass and months that pass, and and now it turns into three years. He may have been thinking perhaps, you know, I was used to bring this powerful message, and, you know, I'm a prophet of God, and, and the nation is going through such darkness, and now it's going through a drought. But, Lord, you got me put away at Cherith here. Do you know that Cherith, what the word means? It means the cutting place. And you see, as the Lord is working in our lives, before he can use us in a mighty way, there has to be a cutting away, doesn't there? There has to be a a cutting away. There has to be a taking away of our self-reliance and, you know, our fleshly tendencies. And that's what the Lord will do with us. He wants to cut away those those things that that we begin to trust in and turn to and, and rely on that is not of the Lord. Those things have to come out of our lives, be cut out of our lives, the fleshly tendencies again and self-reliance and pride and all of that. So here's this time that Elijah 
yet he's there and he's waiting on the Lord. And while that is happening, he's eating bread, he's eating meat, and you and I need to continue to eat of the bread of the word. We need to continue to take on the meat of the word and grow. And as you do, taking in the word of God, continuing in your devotions, folks, again, I know that I sound like a broken record, but it's very important that as Christians, if you want to maintain and keep a very strong, vital, you know, uh, Christian life and spiritual life, you got to be having devotions, getting up and spending time in the word of God and in prayer to the Lord. And I know that we're busy, and I know that we get up early, some of you very early, and um, kids getting ready for school, or you got a, a job you got to go to, or you know, business uh, is you know, going to be uh, starting up. There's all kinds of things, and it's the same with me. And once I get up, and once I get here, and I, we get here fairly early, the phone starts ringing, it gets very busy, but it's important to get up and spend that time with the Lord and be reading the Bible yourself. And I commend you for coming out on Wednesday nights and coming on Sunday mornings. Continue to do that. Taking in the bread of the word, taking in the meat of the word of God. And as you do, all of a sudden you're going to see those fleshly tendencies and attitudes are going to begin to be cut away from your life. So this is what's happening with Elijah at this time. And so Elijah, he's, he's there, and all of a sudden in verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So notice that Elijah, he doesn't leave until he heard the voice of the Lord. And it's important for us that we seek the Lord, um, and as we do, then when we hear his voice, that we move. Elijah didn't try to make it on his own. He didn't say, I'm tired of waiting here. The brook's drying up. I got to go. He waited till he heard the instructions of the Lord. He's being led by the Lord. And he goes to Zarephath, which is up north in Sidon. It's Gentile country. He's told to go to a widow woman who will provide for him. Now, he may have been thinking, here I am stuck in this place for three years. And now I got to go up to Gentile country and I got to have a widow woman who's going to provide for me. That may perhaps have not made sense to Elijah because widows were known to be poor. And he's probably thinking in this drought, how is she going to be able to provide for me? Uh, by the way, Zarephath means refining. So not only as the Lord desires to work in our lives where there's a cutting away, but with that cutting away, there's a refining. With those taking those things out of our lives that are, are not like or of God, as it is a refining that takes place when the goldsmith heats up that gold and melts it down, the dross comes to the top, the impurities, and they begin to scrape it off. There's a taking away. You see, it was Elijah that had to go to Kareth before we see Mount Carmel in the next chapter. There had to be a Zarephath before there's going to be a Mount Carmel, which we're going to see in the next chapter. And in your life, before there is Mount Carmel victories in our lives and God working through us in a powerful way, there's going to be a cutting away and a refining that's going to take place in your life and in my life. And how that happens sometimes, we may not fully understand. Lord, why are you sending me here? Why are you putting me in this place? How is this going to work out? You mean I got to go up to Sidon and I got to allow a widow woman to provide for me? Lord, how is this going to happen? But he trusts the Lord and he goes.
And so we see him go in verse 10. So he rose and went to Zarephath. And he came to the gate of the city. Indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. In verse 12, so she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So you see how bad things were. As Elijah is there, he sees the widow woman. He says, hey, make me a cake, you know, and, um, you know, get me something to to, you know, a little water in a cup that I may drink. It's severe drought that's going on. And she responds by saying, what do you mean? I said, I'm just gathering a few sticks. All I have is a little bit of flour and oil. I'm going to make a cake. Me and my son are going to eat it, and then we're going to end up dying. We're going to end up starving to death. How's how bad it was. So Elijah in verse 13 said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. And thus thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. And the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. So Elijah says, you know what? Don't be afraid. Have you ever been afraid in your life because of the circumstances? Perhaps something's drying up in your life. Things are going away that that you don't want to go away. Whatever it might mean for you, and you become afraid, Lord, my finances are drying up, this relationship is drying up, this opportunity is coming to an end, and we become afraid. And the word of the Lord to you tonight is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with you, and he sees you, and he loves you. And his promises are true for you. And here is Elijah. He says, what you do is is go ahead and make a cake, and you're not going to run out flour you're not going to run out of oil it's going to be provided god's going to provide for you now this is pretty incredible faith that she would go ahead and do that she could have very easily have said no way i i don't have enough how what do you mean don't be afraid what do you mean i I won't run out she could have very easily have said to elijah fill up the bin first and then i'll make a cake and that would have you know been a reasonable or natural response from just about anyone, but she trusted in what he was saying because it was the word of the Lord given to her. And sometimes when the word of the Lord is given to you and to me, we'll say, Lord, how's this going to work? How are you going to provide? And the Lord says, don't be afraid. My promises are true. That I will supply all your needs. That I'm going to take care of you. That I'm your strength. I'm your refuge. I'm your comfort. I'm everything that you need. And sometimes we'll look at it and say, Lord, it doesn't make sense. But as we just follow after the Lord and keep the command of the Lord, you know, in our hearts and have it worked out in our lives, you're going to see that the Lord's going to provide for you. It's interesting that Jesus in Luke chapter 4 spoke of this woman. As he was being rejected by his own people, he, you know, speaks of this woman and her faith here in 1 Kings chapter 17. So the Lord would provide for her, and, and uh, he would provide 
as for many days as it says. And then as we finish the chapter tonight, verse 17, now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. And so she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and, and to kill my son? So now this widow woman sees the faithfulness of God, and after that, now her son dies. And she says to Elijah, you know, have you brought to remembrance my sin? So as you read this, that there's probably a pretty good chance that what she's saying is maybe that she had this child out of wedlock. She sees it as a punishment from God. It's amazing how Christians can think that God is punishing them because of my sin in the past or whatever, rather than knowing that you are forgiven and that Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. This Sunday, we're going to go into 1 John. We finished James last Sunday. Now we're going to do a study in 1 John. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are forgiven of your sins of all unrighteousness and know this, that Jesus took the punishment for you on the cross of Calvary because of his love for you. And when I hear a Christian say, well, God is punishing me. Yes, the Lord, he does chasten us. He disciplines us because he loves us, as Hebrew says. Just as we as parents discipline our children because we want what's best for them and we love them. And it's because of love that the Father will pull us back and discipline us when we're going the wrong direction, you know, when we have wrong attitudes, when we harden our hearts towards him. Yes, he will do that. But don't get into the mindset of God is punishing me like he wants to do that because my sin's in the past and what I've done, and it's coming back now. And I've had Christians in my office so afraid, well, I did this sin years ago. And God has punished me now for it. No, you've been forgiven, washed clean. And he takes our sins and the good news of what the scripture tells us that he throws them as far as the east is from the west. That's an infinite line. If you go east, you can keep going east and keep going east. You'll never meet the point of where you're going west. If you go west, you'll keep going west. It's an infinite line. He throws them as far as the east is from the west. He throws them our sins into the deepest sea, as the scripture says. And then one commentator said he puts up a no fishing sign. <laughs> we have been forgiven and cleansed, and that's the good news about being a Christian, because Jesus Christ died for our sins. And so here she is, she says, you know, have you brought to remembrance my sin? And Elijah, what he does, as he said to her in verse 19, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow in whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. 
want to leave you with this thought. Here was his son. He was, he was dead. Elijah picks him up, puts him down, and he begins to stretch himself out on this child. He, he stretches himself out on the child, and, and all of a sudden life comes back into him. You know how you can bring life into somebody? Because people out there that are spiritually dead, those who don't have Jesus Christ, you pour yourself into them and you begin to reach out and really touch them. You begin to touch them with your life and with your witness and with the love of Jesus Christ. You begin to touch their hearts as you give them truth and give them the gospel. That's when you're going to see life coming into people. There's a lot of people that we know, don't we, each and every one of us that we're around, that they're dead spiritually. And what my prayer is, is that it's your desire as you leave this place, that, Lord, I want to reach out and I want to stretch out and I want to just touch their lives. And how I can do that is being a witness, the reality of Jesus Christ in your life, by showing the love of Jesus Christ to them, by giving them truth. And you're going to see that life will be brought into them as you do that continually and constantly. And my prayer is that you would always be sensitive to that because there's a lot of dead men walking. They're alive, but spiritually they're dead, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. And you and I have opportunity to reach out and touch the people that are linked to us in our lives. Will you do that? Tell them of the love of Jesus Christ. Be a witness of the reality of Jesus Christ in your life and give them the truth of the gospel and you're going to watch people come to life. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word given to us and for this study here tonight. And Lord, what my prayer is, is that as we've gone over these names and kings, that the lessons that we learned, that we would apply that the Lord sin destroys, it brings death. It brings serious consequences. It brings bondage. And, and Lord, we're free from that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. Lord, as we're here tonight, I pray if there's anyone that is here tonight listening to this message that you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, that tonight is the night to do it. That if you've never surrendered, know that your sins are forgiven as you accept Jesus into your heart and believe that he's the Son of God who died for you. He was put into a grave and he rose again after three days. That's the good news. And you see, as you open up your heart to Jesus, he desires to save you. He promises to as you Turn from your sin. The scripture says that we're all sinners. That we've fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. But Jesus, the one who was without sin, the Son of God, came and died for you and took your sins upon himself. And as you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus and surrender your heart to him, he promises to forgive you. There's the hope of heaven that is given in right relationship with the Father that comes only through Jesus Christ.
So if this means anything to anyone here tonight, you've never opened your heart to Jesus Christ, we want to give you opportunity. We do this at every service. That today is the day of salvation because none of us have tomorrow promised to us. So will you open your heart to Jesus Christ? And you can pray right where you're sitting, Jesus, come into my heart. I confess that I am a sinner. I believe in my heart that you're the Son of God who died for me on Calvary's cross. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you rose again after three days because you're alive right now knocking on the door of my heart. And I open my heart to you right now. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I turn to you and I surrender to you. I give you my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer and for cleansing me, forgiving me. Thank you, Jesus. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, and even if you're out in a coffee shop out there, will you raise your hand tonight? Anybody at all so we can pray for you? Anybody come to Christ in this?